Hello, y'all. Good morning. My name is Sarah Stiles, and I'm a part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And gosh, y'all, it's such an honor to be able to speak from his word and share some of what he's been teaching me with y'all. The last couple times I actually got to teach, uh, I was looking at only the camera and the little red light in the back of the room. So it's really nice to actually see life, people. Um, Praise God that we've been able to do this. Uh, From wherever you're listening, a huge welcome and thank you too for being women who prioritize the study of his word so that we can be women who live out his word. So thank you truly for being here. Our Lord really delights in seeing his daughters align their hearts with his. Okay, well, I want you all to picture the scene with me. Uh, Traffic on 30, uh, it's rush hour, and there's been a wreck. Uh, and I'm late for dinner with friends. And this is just a plausible scenario, but um, very likely. Here is a scene that is rife with conflict. How is my heart going to respond? Uh, Or maybe I should ask, how is my horn going to respond? (laughs) Conflict reveals the insides of a heart because it squeezes it and it puts it under pressure. Um, And it's easy to be calm and kind uh, whenever there's no pressure or when your agenda isn't threatened with any traffic on the road or rude drivers. And the Lord and I are working on my heart, which tends to show its ugly colors a lot uh, when driving around slow traffic. Um, I don't mind traffic as much, but when someone is going like 10 miles under the speed limit or they get mad at me for going the speed limit, uh, my heart easily yields anger and pride. And now I admit this is somewhat humorous, and, but it reveals lots of ugly that is just sitting in my heart, and that's why the Lord and I are working on it. Well, we all want our hearts to look like our Lord's. We admire that David is known after the man, after God's own heart, and that's really commendable, and we want to be known as the woman after God's own heart. But that aspiration is truly tested when at the end of a long work day, your friend asks for help when you, you had wanted to read a book, or uh, maybe a colleague misunderstands a kind intention, a friend doesn't follow through, leaving you to sit in deep disappointment, when your baby takes your sleep, or your husband's stressed, and then you're stressed, or maybe something as simple as when uh, your family wants to play Scrabble on a Saturday evening and you wanted to go watch that new Marvel movie. <laughs> You get my point. Conflict is inevitable, and not all conflict is bad, but it always tests the character of our heart. So what do you want your heart to show whenever conflict arises? When confronted with something you don't like, how is your heart going to respond? I think we'd all like to say love, joy, peace, patience, and all the fruits of the Spirit, but we know that when confrontation squeezes our hearts, it can only produce what's been cultivated there. So when a heated situation presents itself, how can we be ready to respond with a heart of wisdom and selflessness rather than a heart that's full of anger and a selfish agenda? Remember when Samuel went to Jesse's home to discover the second king of Israel, soon to be king of Israel, David? What does God say to Samuel? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Essentially, God is saying, I see the heart, and the heart tells me everything I need to know about someone. And we see that theme throughout First and Second Samuel. Wouldn't would it be great if we always responded in conflict with a teachable heart and the heart of a servant? Well, we're going to receive help for our hearts today uh, by looking at three characters in First Samuel 25. In this story, we're going to see that conflict squeezes three hearts and reveals a greedy and foolish heart an angry but teachable heart, and a wise and selfless heart. So how do we respond with hearts that look like Christ? Well, turn to 1 Samuel 25, if you're not already there. This is after 1 Samuel 24 and before 1 Samuel 26. I know that sounds dumb now, but there's a point for it later. Let's start by reading the first four verses. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran, 
And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Okay, I realize that's a lot of information to shoot at you all at once, lots of people and lots of places, um, so we're going to break it down a bit. Uh, first, our beloved Samuel has passed and been buried. This is the last judge of Israel who had anointed the first two kings, well, soon to be king uh, in this instance. And then we have three main characters and a bunch of sheep and goats. David, who is in his 20s right now, he's still on the run from Saul. In fact, chapters 24 and 26, which bookend this chapter, share the stories of two chances that David had to kill Saul. Last week, we looked at Saul in the cave where David had the chance uh, to kill Saul, but instead of uh, spearing him, he spared him. And I'm not going to spoil what happens in chapter 26, so you'll have to come back next week for that. Um, So for the context of chapter 25, David is with his 600 men, it's now grown to 600, and he's still moving around while God is hiding him from Saul. The two other main characters in this chapter are a married couple, Nabal and Abigail. And these two could not be more opposite. I don't think opposites attract was in this marriage. What do we learn about this Nabal from verses 2 and 3? Well, his home is in Maon, and his business is in Carmel. And this is not pronounced Carmel, like the candy. Uh, The text says that he is wealthy, and as for his personality, he is harsh and badly behaved. Other translations have his deeds were evil, and he was mean in all his dealings. Uh, The word is also used to describe, the word harsh is also used to describe fierce battles, Uh, And this isn't just a word meaning rude or unkind. It carries harshness, fiercely mean, very unkind. The author also adds on, uh, he's he's a Calebite, which is a descendant of Caleb. And if y'all remember, Caleb was one of the two good guys, Joshua being the other, originally able to enter the promised land because of their trust in the Lord. And it's too bad that Nabal wasn't like his ancestor, a follower of the Lord. Now for Abigail. Look at verse 3. She is discerning and beautiful, which is a pretty good combo. And this wise could be translated as good of insight, of good understanding, intelligent, clever. So we have the the senseless and fiercely mean Nabal, and then the good-looking and clever Abigail. Uh, So those are the characters. Uh, Now let's look at the places. And if you could pull up the map, that would be great. Y'all should each have a map in your notebook at the front. Um, And then it looks like this. And then we'll also put up um, the zoomed-in map. Um, Awesome, thank you. This is going to look at more of the places that we're at in today. Um, So first, Ramah. Um, If you go to the top of the Salt Sea, which is also the Dead Sea, and turn left and a little bit up, uh, Ramah is right next to Jericho. And this is where um, Samuel is from, actually. And though he was a boy um, who grew up in the tabernacle with the priest Eli, Samuel's parents, Hannah and Elkanah, were from there. And Ramah is also where the elders of Israel asked Samuel to give us a king like the other nations. Um, As for the wilderness of Paran, this actually is not on your map, but it's way under um, the Salt Sea. And this is actually where the Israelites wandered for a little bit. It's closer to Mount Sinai. And then um, some of y'all's translations there may say the wilderness of Maon. Um, It's more likely the wilderness of Paran. Some translations say Maon because it mentions Maon in verse 2. Um, but it's more likely that the desert area is where he would have been. Um, it's a better place to hide from Saul. And interestingly, actually, it's this desert of Paran where Nabal's ancestor, Caleb, reported to Moses, um, contrary to the fear of many others, that we can take the land. We can take the promised land. Okay, so now um, if we go back to the map, we can find Carmel and Maon. So go to the middle of um, the Dead Sea and then turn left. 
You'll see En Gedi, which we talked about last week, and then Carmel and Maon, which are super close together. Um, and so those are the main places that we're going to be uh, during this time. And by the way, this is not the same Carmel that y'all might know from Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal. That one is more up towards the Mediterranean. Um, this is the town of Carmel. Okay, well, there's the setting, and we have the places and the people, um, and a lot of sheep. So let's look at verses 4 through 8. So David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So while on the run from Saul... David and his 600 guys have given voluntary protection and care to Nabal's shepherds and sheep, helping to protect them against thieves or wild animals in the area. And in verse 2, the word says that Nabal has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And um, I don't know if David and his men were taking care of all of those, um, but we know that Nabal was very wealthy, and so they had a lot to take care of. So it was a common practice during sheep shearing time that if you had helped guard the flocks in some way that you would be recompensed in some way. And so David is sending a kind reminder uh, during this April and March or April and May season and asking for provision, which he was rightly due, which is a pretty logical request, right? And he's asking very respectfully and graciously, uh, not demanding, and he's even referring to him, he... um, even referring to himself and his men as your servants. Um, I like how the Net Bible translation words his request. Please give us whatever you can spare. So what do we expect Nabal, this wealthy man, uh, to respond? I would think, yes, of course. Thank you for taking exceptional care of my men and my flocks. I'm sending back with your men ample provision and more um, because of your service. Uh, I've heard the Lord's with you, and so here you go. Um, But we've already kind of had a hint in verse 3 that this is not the character of Nabal. And we've seen how some uh, who help aid David, how Saul responds to that. So that might be another reason why he responds the way that he does. So how is the foolish Nabal going to respond in this situation? Well, let's look at verses 10 through 11. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who I come from I do not know where? Uh, I think that's a no from Nabal uh, to David's request. Uh, One translation says that uh, Nabal sneered and even called them a band of outlaws. Uh, what disrespect and extreme selfishness. And hopefully you all notice the repeated my, my, my. Uh, And it's not like David is some stranger or beggar. I mean, he's taking care of dozens, uh, if not hundreds, of these animals and these shepherds. And so it doesn't really seem like David is a bad outlaw to me. Um, Also, did you all notice how Nabal used the phrase son of Jesse? That made me think of um, how many times Saul has used that in a scorning manner as well. Uh, David was extremely gracious in his rightful request. After all, it was customary to receive provision during this time. Think of it kind of like a um, tipping your waiter or waitress. It's not mandatory, but it's highly suggested, especially if they've done a good job, which David has. And then, especially with a culture that was big on hospitality, even more should Nabal be glad to give provision. And though Nabal Nabal asks, hey, who's David in verse 10? Uh, He knows who David is. I mean, he says, calls him the son of Jesse. Um, And so he is labeling David and his men not as the wonderful, wonderful servants who helped him, 
but as the servants who broke away from their master. And who he's referring to in this is Saul. Nabal was a tight-fisted man. And I have often been a tight-fisted woman. And if y'all want to hear a humorous story about my selfishness, I'm glad to share. Pun intended. Um, One night when I was working on prepping this lesson, two other friends were over at my place. One, my roommate Katie, um, who lived there, so I guess she wasn't really over. But uh, Katie and then my friend Lib, uh, who is my middle school best friend, and Lib and her husband have been so hospitable to me since I moved to Fort Worth to always provide me with wonderful food, um, inviting me over for lunch or for dinner. And Lib and I had worked out, we got our protein smoothies, and then we went home and I needed to work on this. And after a while, I started becoming hungry again. And so I went to the fridge and I had some cheese sticks. And so I ate one of the cheese sticks at my table, but I didn't offer her one. And I was just thinking, oh, Sarah, you should offer her one. But I only had two left. And, <laughs> and I hate cooking, y'all. And I was just like, oh, my beloved cheese sticks. But <laughs> um, I knew that I needed to offer one. And uh, so thankfully, the Holy Spirit convicted me and I gave her one. Um, but then I still had one other person left in the room and one other cheese stick. Um, I went and ate the rest of my Chick-fil-A salad that I had had for lunch, but the Holy Spirit's voice came up again. And I'm pretty sure it was the Holy Spirit because my last cheese stick was on the line. Um, but, and I didn't want to give it up, but thankfully the Spirit won that battle and my roomie got the last cheese stick. But, you know, it felt so much better to just give those away and what a petty thing. And I know that's a silly example, but here's the point that I'd like to illustrate. Everything I have from my home to my cheese sticks, from my paycheck to my time, uh, it's not just mine. It belongs first and foremost to God, who is the giver of everything. So if he says, give Katie that last cheese stick, I'm going to give her the piece of cheese. If he says, Sarah, I want you to move out of the country and go to a place where people need to know about my son Jesus, I'm going to move. Everything I have is his. It's all his. So to recap the first 11 verses, Samuel's died, and David's still on the run. David graciously asks Nabal for a repayment, and Nabal insultingly refuses, creating the fuel for conflict to arise. A conflict is birthed from Nabal's heart when his foolish greed rejects David's need. His heart has created the potential for conflict. It's easy to give to someone when it's something we want to give. Uh, It's easier to share with those um, whom we want acceptance from, and it's easy to share when it's just a cheese stick or to share with those who are kind and generous themselves. Um, I I love having people over to my place, and uh, having friends stay the night kind of allows me to be uh, the host and play mom. And, you know, I'm not married, but I would love to have kids. And so it kind of feels like I get to take care of them in a way. Uh, but when someone's need is not a place uh, to stay, but more of an ask of my time, uh, that's a lot harder. Uh, my foolish greed really does arise in my heart in that way. Um, People give me back my house when they leave, so that's much easier. But when people take my time, that is a lot harder. Um, What if instead of responding, my time, my schedule, my agenda, I responded instead with his time, his agenda, his way? A verse that continually came to mind while I was studying this is um, John 19, 10 through 11, And it's a verse when uh, Jesus is talking with Pilate directly before the crucifixion. And Pilate says to him, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Any authority that we have, any wealth, any influence, any time, our spiritual giftings, it's all been given us from the Father. So with Nabal, we see this principle. The selfish heart creates unnecessary conflict, missing the opportunity to serve another through giving. Okay, let me say that again. The selfish heart creates unnecessary conflict, missing the opportunity to serve another through giving. 
So how do we as women who want to uh, emulate God's own heart respond to this principle? Well, we combat a selfish heart when we acknowledge everything we've been given is his. All we have to do is remember his, 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 not mine, mine, mine. Okay, let's look at what happens next. How is David going to respond in this conflict? Uh, How does he respond to Nabal's selfishness? Well, we've seen how he's responded to Saul in the past, who has tried over and over and over again to kill him. And we've seen him fight the Lord's battles and step up bravely. But how does he respond in this? Okay, look at verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Well, it looks like they have weapons at this point. Uh, So 400 guys and David with swords going to Carmel and Nabal. Doesn't sound too peaceful and it doesn't sound very wise. David's immediate response to Nabal's denial is rash anger. It's not rational. Nabal had responded pridefully in superiority, and David is now responding in injury to his own pride. Uh, And the text doesn't say this, but I wonder if David and his men, uh, when they had been aiding Nabal and his um, shepherds and his flocks, if David thought, you know, it's going to be great whenever that sheep-shearing time comes and we'll have food and provision uh, while we're on the run, Um, I'm sure he would have thought of that. And, you know, the excitement of food when you're out in the wilderness is great, but denied hopeful expectations are very painful. Um, They can feel unfair and frustrating when you're hungry. I think hangry fits really well right here. And it makes sense that David was angry. It really does. But what he did with that anger was very unwise. Um, Chuck Swindoll says this when he's speaking of David in 1 Samuel 25. He gives this advice. If you're not careful, you will handle conflicts in the energy of the flesh. And then you'll be sorry. Take each conflict as it comes. You may have won the battle yesterday, but it doesn't count when today's skirmish comes. You may have a great measure of patience today, but it makes no difference tomorrow when the attack comes again. God doesn't give you patience on credit. Every day is a new day. Uh, Before we look at the next verses, I'm curious, have any of y'all ever played in a team sport or your kids played in team sport? No one? Okay, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Um, You've likely heard your coach or a teammate uh, say the phrase, give 110%, as if 100% is not enough. But anyway, the point being, in the sport, um, when we're saying that it's, you know, diving for a ball on the court or being willing to jump in the stands and retrieve a basketball or something, um, or for me, sprinting through asthma, which is like the worst. But if anyone in the story is going 110% in a good way, it's Abigail. So let's read verses 14 through 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Okay, so Abigail has been told this important information. Uh, How would we respond in Abigail's shoes? I don't know if I could say that I would respond the way that she did. Um, And you know, I don't know how long she's been in this marriage, but I might have taken a second to think, hmm, maybe the Lord is, you know, going to utilize David and wipe out this worthless husband of mine. Um, Who knows? Um, But, you know, it's possible that she thought this, but honestly, I don't know that she did because we see a little bit of her character already in the first verses, and we're going to see more of it in a second in verse 18. Uh, Look at verse 18 with me. Then Abigail made haste, and she took 200 loaves, 
two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. I love how quickly she responds here. She's not like sitting and debating what should I do. Her, hearing that her husband's in danger, finding out that her household is in danger, she doesn't delay to respond to David's request for food. Uh, Abigail sends her servants ahead with a ton of donkeys, and then she follows them, and she doesn't tell Nabal about this, which is extremely wise. So it's 401 men with swords are coming towards her household to take the life of this foolish man. Abigail and tons of donkeys are coming the other way, moving with food towards David and his guys to feed them and hopefully appease them. Uh, to give you a bit of what's going on inside David's head during this time, look at verses 21 and 22. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So the text doesn't say what Abigail was thinking during this time uh, on her journey towards them. Um, but look again at your map. Find Carmel and Maon and look at the key at the bottom of your page that shows the distance of 40 miles. Uh, this distance between Maon and Carmel is like less than three miles. And so the journey from Abigail's home to meeting David is short. It's not like she suddenly developed a kind and wise heart on the drive over. Uh, I think she's already been responding to God teaching her how to say his, his, his. She responded to the conflict with discernment and with selflessness uh, that God had already developed in her uh, to where when her husband's rashness put her household in danger, she could immediately act in wisdom. Hebrews 5.14, and this isn't on your verse sheet, I ran across it last night, and I was like, oh, this is so good, so I inserted it real quick. But it speaks to the one who has had their senses trained to discern good and evil. Abigail has, is one who has learned to walk in truth and to follow God's promised words already. Uh, there was a meeting I was at work in, I think it was last semester, uh, and someone said something in the meeting that was so good, I just jotted it down on my phone. Um, but he said, don't underestimate the one who faithfully gets up and does the next right thing, trusting results to God. Um, and that's really stuck with me. Don't underestimate the one who faithfully gets up and does the next right thing, trusting results to God. I think that that is very um, characteristic of, of Abigail here in faithfulness. Well, let's see what happens when the two big parties finally meet. I'm going to look at 23 through 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this wealth, worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So Abigail immediately takes the posture of a servant, which is so unlike her husband who takes the position of superiority instead. Uh, she bows before him. She takes the blame for her husband's faults, though she had no part in him. I, I don't think I could do that. I'm very defensive. Um, but she is demonstrating through her words, through her posture, through her actions, the heart of a servant here. Chuck Swindoll pointed out that she chose to protect her husband, not because he deserved it, but because she was, and not because he was good, but because she was good. Despite how bad a husband he had been, she chose to remain honorable in her role as his partner, even when he was not present. So in her apology, she's taking the blame for her husband's sin. And she also points out that the name Nabal can mean uh, foolish, or uh, it also means senseless as well. Proverbs 23.9 says, Don't speak in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. In verses 26 through 27, she states that the Lord has restrained David from blood guilt, from murder, and from sinful revenge. Uh, and 
You know, it's interesting that those whom David would have wiped out in that area, it was very, very close to Hebron, which is the place that he soon became king. So it's just interesting to realize how close that was. Uh, And not only does God use Abigail to steer David away from the sin, but she also continues to provide some deep encouragement um, and provision for David and his men. I think verses 28 through 31 are my favorites uh, in this chapter. And in fact, one resource that I looked at said that Abigail's speech isn't the highlight of the entire book of First and Second Samuel put together. And I'll say why in a second, but I found that amazing. So, okay, look at verses 28 through 31 with me. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done good to my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Um, One clarifying thing, she says Lord a lot right here, and hopefully your translation distinguishes um, the couple, but saying my Lord over and over again, it's just a good, another way of saying master or a way of respect. She's not calling him God. Um, so hopefully that clarifies some things. I know um, it can be a bit confusing. So she is saying my Lord over and over again, taking the posture of a servant. Um, and I love how the New Living Translation in verse 31, part of the verse says, don't let this, let this be a blemish on your record. Um, so why are these verses such a big deal? I told you that I would tell you why the commentator said that. So Abigail is reminding David of God here, which is huge. She's encouraging David in the ways that God has so often encouraged his own people. And then uh, God has often told his people to remember what he's done for them and what he's going to do, and that's what she is doing. Um, but the commentator, David A. Dorsey, says this concerning why 1 Samuel 25 is considered the central part of the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel put together. This is what he says. The story seems an unlikely center since it doesn't seem to represent a high point, turning point, or climax of any sort. There are, however, at least two points that support its centrality and importance. One, it opens with the death of Samuel, which certainly marks a significant turning point in the book. And two, some of the most important themes in the entire book of Samuel are verbalized here in Abiel's remarkable speech. A, David refraining from avenging himself with his own hands, which we've seen even with Saul. B, David's innocency of wrongdoing and the wish that it will continue his whole life. C, God's protection and blessing of David. And D, God's intention to make David Israel's king and to make David's dynasty Israel's permanent ruling dynasty. That's a lot that Abigail says, isn't it? And it's so good that he's reminded of this again and again. David needs this reminder as he's on the run from Saul for like a decade. I liked how uh, one commentator put it. All the greatness which she predicted would come to David, she attributed to the only source of good, God. And she helped David to know he was the object of God's love and care. She reminds David that he is fighting God's battles and needs to continue to follow him in purity of heart. Look again at verse 31. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. After she says all this, she says, remember your servant. Um, By the way, as I was reading this, it just reminded me, did it remind you of Jonathan's heart at all and how he comes along and he reminds, hey, remember what God's going to do. Remember who God is. And the Lord is so gracious with David's story to continue to provide those people with Jonathan and with Abigail saying, hey, remember, you're fighting the Lord's battles. Remember what God has promised you. Um, 
God's so faithful, um, and I hope that you've seen that in your own life as well. I don't think there are greater people than those who bring you back to the reality of God, uh, who God is, and who you are in light of him. Um, oh, and by the way, fun fact, Abigail's name means, uh, in Hebrew, means father's joy, um, which is so different than fool. Um, but I think she's lived up to her name in this and how she's followed the Lord and lived with the mentality of his, his, and his. Um, if I uh, get out of the right side of the bed in the morning, um, which I'm not a morning person, so I need his help greatly, uh, it's when I begin my day by offering uh, my, re- my risen Jesus my hands and my heart that's essentially open saying, okay, this day is yours, my time is yours, May I listen to your Holy Spirit um, and obey him today. That is a great way that um, I'm working and I need to, instead of responding to the conflict in my heart with stress, instead responding, okay, this is your day, your time. Uh, The conflict in my heart is more not usually give me wisdom on what to do, but I know the wisdom and I need to do it. Romans 11:34 says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So do we go above and beyond to love during conflict, as Abigail did, living out the heart of God, even though it may cause inconvenience or even sorrow? Life was not fair for Abigail at all, uh, and life isn't fair for us. It's not going to be. But she protected her husband. She acted quickly and selflessly. And God always honors the selfless heart. So with Abigail, we see this principle to follow. The wise heart serves in the midst of conflict, going above and beyond to meet a need. The wise heart serves in the midst of conflict, going above and beyond to meet a need. So how do we respond to that? Well, we cultivate a wise heart when we depend on God and trust his plans. Uh, So in guarding against a selfish heart, we say his, 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 everything belongs to him. And promoting a wise heart and offering help, we can remember the phrase, I can help, or me, 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 but in a good way. So what is it that David spoke as Abigail was speaking? Did you all see what he said? Nothing. He listened. Uh, Listening is the first sign of a teachable heart. David's been called a man after God's own heart, and God himself called David that, which is amazing. So how does David, this man after God's own heart, now respond to Abigail, sword strapped to his side? Well, look at verses 32 through 35. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you'd hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been, one, not been left to enable so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. Talk about a changed heart. Like, going up with 400 guys uh, to this, blessed be the Lord and blessed be you. Uh, I see patience and humility, uh, a teachable heart, one willing to listen and as we've looked at David and 1 Samuel, we've seen him presented with conflict after conflict after conflict. I mean, think about whenever, uh, I, think, I think it was with Goliath, yeah, his brother Eliab was essentially calling him a pipsqueak. And then now with that conflict of where the battle was with Goliath, how Saul has lied again and again and again and has tried to kill him again and again. And even in chapter 24, we got a glimpse of Saul's um, Uh, how close David was to killing him, and how he felt guilt for just cutting off a bit of his robe. Uh, It's it's really amazing to see his teachable heart here. Uh, It's easy to become angry. Uh, David rightly deserved payment from Nabal uh, for his protection and provision of his flocks and his men, Uh, but he pulled God into into that situation originally, um, in which he almost took another's life, well, many lives, 
into his own hands unrighteously. Uh, but God provided Abigail, and I love that, the voice of wisdom, and her words landed on a teachable heart. Uh, one whose heart was already really committed to serving the Lord. Uh, we see this with David's first words back to her. Uh, his words weren't, get out of the way, woman, give me my food that's owed me. Uh, but instead, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. David's response isn't one of defense or revenge or anger. It's one of blessing because he sees that her speech is of the Lord. Her words line up with God's way, so he submits to them. Look again at the end of verse 35. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice and granted your petition. You know that Abigail had to have had a breath of relief with that. Uh, and there was a verse in Proverbs 11 that came to mind while I was working on this. And, um, and I wanted to share it. And as I kept reading the verses around Proverbs 11:25, there were more and more verses in Proverbs 11 that I thought applied so well to this story. And I wish I could read the whole chapter, but there's not time. So y'all will have to go back and read it, but I'll read some of them. Um, side note, Proverbs 11 was written uh, by David's son, Solomon, uh, who was yet to be born at this point. Uh, but he would have known the story of Abigail. Uh, and it makes me wonder, you know, who Solomon was thinking of whenever he wrote his Proverbs. But anyway, okay, look at Proverbs 11 to first. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Then look at 11.8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Uh, this whole chapter is so good. Uh, verse 16. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. And then 1120, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. I see the blameless heart uh, that the Lord delights in here. Okay, now we're getting closer to the verses I originally wanted to share with you. Verses 24 through 25, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters, uh, one who waters will himself be watered. Okay, and then lastly, verse 29. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. I feel like this proverb is just like so perfect for this story. Uh, and I feel like the story could end there with Abigail going home in peace. But wait, there's more to happen. So Abigail goes home in peace, and when she gets home to tell her husband what happened, who, by the way, had no idea that his life was about to end, Abigail comes home and finds him drunk, completely wasted at a big party he's thrown. Again, her discernment kicks into gear, and she leaves him be saying nothing until the next morning. So when she approaches her hungover husband the next day and tells him what happened the day before, the text read, his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Uh, there's debate on whether this is a heart attack or a stroke, but either way, he's shocked. Uh, then around 10 days after that, and look at verse 38, it says that the Lord struck Nabal. The Lord struck him. Not David, the Lord. Romans 12, 19, and 21 say this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, for it's written Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when David hears of Nabal's death, look at what he says in verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned to the evil of Nabal on his own head that David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Once again, David responds with blessing the Lord and praising him. And instead of bringing guilt on his own heads by taking matters into his own hands, he gives credit to the Lord with his action. 
God is the one who chooses life or death of someone, not us. David's son Solomon writes this in Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own opinion, but the one who listens to advice is wise. So with David, we see this principle to follow. The teachable heart sees God's way as best, repenting when confronted during conflict. The teachable heart sees God's way as best, repenting when confronted during conflict. So how do we respond to that? Well, we cultivate a teachable heart when we submit to his will over our wishes. James 1, 19 through 20 says this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteousness, righteous life that God desires. So remember with combating the selfish heart, we say his, his, his. With cultivating a servant's heart, we say I can help, me, me, me. And lastly, and y'all might find this a bit kooky, but hopefully it sticks. The three words we remember for cultivating a teachable heart are quick, slow, slow. Kind of like a dance step in a way. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. One writer says this regarding David's initial response to Nabal. This was not David's best moment. His reaction was a rash act of the flesh, not a prompting by the Spirit of God. I urge you to put your promptings to the test. The Lord will honor his truth by confirming it for you. Refuse to act impulsively. Instead, weigh your words carefully. Sleep on decisions having significant consequences. And remain open to reproof. Uh, I don't think we realize how much conflict we can cause. Uh, we see the conflict that others cause really easily, right? But ourself, it, it takes a teachable heart to see it. And if you don't know if you're the one causing conflict or not, ask yourself, am I defensive when I'm being confronted? Or do you respond with listening ears, a mouth slow to speak, a heart slow to become angry? So the end of the story is this. David sends for the widow Abigail to become his wife. And once again, we see Abigail responding in haste in a servant's fashion. And she comes to him, and they get married. Uh, Look at verses 43 through 44. So David has already taken another wife named Ahinoam, and he had already been married to Michal, but Saul took her away from David and gave him to another guy. Um, And the story ends there. It's just kind of like this P.S. And I want to briefly address what could seem like a sweet love story. Uh, From the beginning of Scripture until the end, God has always without fail put marriage between one man and one woman. And because of that, I don't think it was wise or right at all of David to take another wife, even though it was a common and permissible sin of the day. And it might have been out of good intentions to take care of the widowed Abigail. But by the way, later on, as we continue looking at David's story, we're going to see a lot of conflicts and consequences of having multiple wives, which David ended up having eight wives um, total. So I want to go back to the question that I asked at the beginning. When conflict tests our heart's response, how are we going to be ready to respond with a teachable heart and the heart of a servant rather than a selfish heart that just oozes mine, mine, mine? How can we already be prepped to respond with a wise and Christ-like heart rather than the heart that screams the agenda of self? Well, when I'm prompted by the Spirit to recognize the anger in the car as I'm driving, I must bring that to the Lord immediately and quickly and apologize asking for his help, revealing a teachable heart. Uh, Because, you know, thankfully I've become better and better at it, but it's also had other people that have had to point it out to me as well. So how do we cultivate this wise heart that shows itself in service? Abigail is the first one in the text uh, to show the Lord in the right light in this chapter. David had briefly mentioned the word God in a rash vow before journeying to my own, but Abigail is the one who reminds David uh, of the Lord's character. She knew the Lord, and from her knowledge of him, she served. We see the fruit of Nabal's foolish heart, uh, disrespect, rash anger, a life void of relationship with the Lord, and eventually death. But with David and Abigail, we see that when their hearts are in line with God's timed promises and agenda, as well as his ways and his wisdom, their submission created a platform to gift praise 
to the Lord for how and for when he works. So rather than cultivating a heart that's driven by emotion uh, and the self-filled agenda which yields great disappointment, let's set our minds on things above, like Colossians 3 says. Let's set our minds on the, the servant, the ultimate servant, Jesus, who is there. You know, if the Lord had my heart fully, I would always choose him. And if we desire the heart of God, which is the heart that looks like his son and bears the fruit of his spirit, we can't wait around for life to be fair or easygoing in order to start displaying his heart. That's not going to happen. But our heart grows to look like his when we respond like him in the conflict. Let me say that again. Our heart grows to look like his when we respond like him in the conflict. Jesus endured conflict by trusting the Father. Uh, He willingly served the Abigails, the foolish Nabals, the angry Davids. Uh, And I love that Mark 10.45 says that Jesus didn't come to earth to be served, but instead to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Oh, that we would have hearts that look like his, and thankfully we have the Spirit that helps us. Um, I'd love to close our time together by uh, asking the Lord for help. Um, So would y'all pray with me? Oh, my Father, how we want to have hearts that look like your sons. There's joy in knowing you, but it's hard following you sometimes. Cultivate hearts of wisdom and hearts of servants. Replace our stubborn hearts in selfish ways. Reveal to us the blind spots where we don't see rebellion against you. This life you've granted us is not um, about our agenda. It's all yours. So, Father, as David asked you after failing in a moment of conflict, create in us a a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. So we ask the same. And as your son asked you in a conflicting moment, not my will but yours, Father, so we ask you the same. We desire a heart that looks like yours, a servant's heart submitted to your wisdom and to your will. Amen.